0: How cool is that? Awesome. If you have your Bible with you, turn it to uh, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19. Hey, kids, I didn't know you guys came up. How cool to have you up here! All the children were up here to watch that. Good for you. Good modeling. So, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19, I going to pray with you in just a minute. We, what we've been doing, if you're new to New Hope or maybe haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we've been working through this really short series, and it's called Revealing Jesus, and it's a four-week study, and today happens to be the, the last one, week number four. So in the last couple of weeks, what we've looked at is how God the Son became Jesus the man, God condescending, putting on flesh, and becoming man and becoming one of us. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at how man killed God and God was buried, and then last week, how God burst forth from the grave, and then we see the resurrection. But it would be very incomplete if we left him there. The logical question would be, where is he now, and how does that relate to me? Why is that important to my world today in 2015? Understand it's a very incomplete biblical picture to only think of Jesus as resurrected, It's really necessary to have a comprehensive view of Him, and I believe you're going to get that this morning. And here's why. When you really learn who Jesus is, not who you want Him to be, when you really learn who Jesus is, everything changes. Your perspective completely shifts. You love differently. You live differently. When you really understand who Jesus is, So let's pray together, and we're going to step into the text. Father, we come before you recognizing that what we just witnessed is the evidence of new birth. To be able to see these individuals, Connor and Eric, who have willingly said before this group and this service, we stand for Jesus. Thank you for that witness, and we now, because we're followers of yours, look into your word. Have you teach us? Have you guide us? have you reveal things to us that we can't see on our own. So, Father, I ask that you allow us to set aside the distractions, all the other things that might be tugging at our mind right now, that might be begging for our attention. I ask that you help us to focus on you. And we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. One of the characteristic traits of Jesus is that throughout the New Testament individuals listened to him and after they listened to him they would say things like he spoke as one who had authority. Now I don't know if you find that remarkable but when you look throughout the New Testament when Jesus appears in public and when he appears in private people began using this word authority attached to him. Here's an example of it from Matthew 7:29. He spoke as one who had authority. Well, he had just been teaching to a large group, and this large group responded. He speaks as one who has authority. In other words, Jesus backs up what he says. Now, this word authority is the word exousia, and I'd like you to see it in the Greek, but it's in your notes this morning, both in Greek and in Hebrew. You'll see the Hebrew in just a minute. So there's four Greek words in your notes this morning. We haven't done that in a long time, but I I need you to understand what's being communicated here. Exousia, this one who has authority, is talking about somebody with competency, and also force. So not just competency and force, but this one who has freedom. So it translates to these thoughts, like superhuman behavior. Not just superhuman befa- behavior, but one who has jurisdiction, who has liberty and power. Have you personally ever made a claim that you couldn't back up? We do it all the time, right? Right? We make promises to ourselves, we make promises to others. We say, I'm going to lose a certain amount of weight by such and such date, and we don't hit it, right? Or I'm going to save a certain amount of money by such and such time. We make claims that we can't back up. God never makes a claim that he can't back up. But human nature is to make promises or claims that we can't support. 1980, Muhammad Ali, if you don't know him, you're probably younger than 35 years of age, but Muhammad Ali was a a super boxing champ, heavyweight champion of the world. 1980, he's at the peak of his career and he's getting onto an airplane in New York City. He climbs into first class, settles down into his seat, and he's going to fly to Washington. While he's sitting in his seat, the flight attendant walks up to him and says, "Uh, Mr. Ali, you need to put on your seatbelt. Muhammad Ali is known for his quick wit, so he very quickly responded to the flight attendant, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant, who was even quicker than him, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put on your (laughs) seatbelt. He's making a claim he couldn't back up, right? Okay, he wishes he had exousia. He wishes he had that kind of authority. The, The greatest rabbis in the entire world during the time of the first century could point to and judge certain aspects of the bible they could determine what it was being what it was communicating that was reserved for those who had authority So when Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins speaking as one who has authority, he gets challenged on what he's doing. Let me take you to Matthew, and it says this in Matthew 21. You'll see it on the screen. When he, meaning Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, in the Hebrew language, I already gave you the, the Greek explanation, which is exousia. In the Hebrew language, authority is this cool word. I love it. Shmika. It's just fun to even to say. Shmika means a laying on of the hands. It means a transfer of power. So the person is invested with so much authority that those around him w- would lay hands on them. We see that in the church when elders are selected or somebody is sent off to the mission field. The church puts hands on them. They're communicating something. This one has been given authority. So the leaders are challenging Jesus. Where did you get Shemekah? Who dared to give you authority? Who would even authorize you? So watch Jesus' response to them. Matthew 21, verse 23. Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's going to do a little riddle with them, right? Play a little game with them. Well, they can't answer his question because what he asked them is, where does John the Baptist get his authority? By what does he do the things that he does? Well, they don't want to get in political trouble. The people love John. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So they just decide to play the easy route. This is their response. Verse 27, answering Jesus, they said to him, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Wow. You ever had somebody come and ask you a question about the Bible and you know the answer and you'd say, nah, I'm not going to tell you. See, that's what Jesus is doing. I'm not going to tell you. Why would he do that? Well, these are rude dudes. These are guys who are always in his face and he's not going to cast pearls before swine. That's what scripture talks about. People really have no interest in the answer. They just want to push into his face. But Jesus wants us to know where His authority comes from, and it completes the picture of understanding who Jesus really is. And that's why I wanted you to go to Revelation, because we want to understand where does His authority emanate from? Because He makes promises to you like this, I forgive you of all your sin. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I'm done, I will come back for you and take you to myself. Wouldn't you want to know where that authority to say those kind of things comes from? Those are pretty big promises. That's why I want to step into Revelation with you, because there's two major crescendos, chapter 4 and chapter 19. We're going to look at them very, very briefly this morning. So go with me to chapter 4 first, but stick your finger in chapter 19. And we see in chapter 4 and verse 2, John makes a statement. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he says this in verse 2, part A, Behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Now, it's logical when you think of authority as it relates to God that you're going to begin to think of His throne. And the throne room of God is the dwelling place of the Ancient of Days. And so John is saying, wow, I'm in the control room of the universe. So he uses this word behold in verse 2, which is in the English language, wow, this is astounding. It's, It's the word ado, and it just means to be literally astonished. Now, I'm not sure what you envision when you think of God's throne or God's government, but when you think of His throne, you need to think of His government. And God's government, His kingdom, is a theocracy. We're used to a democracy. Well, I'm here to tell you there's no Congress in heaven, okay? Some of you are thinking amen right now. There there is no Congress in eternity. It is a theocracy, That means one controls all operations of the government. That's what a theocracy is. So when we think on planet Earth of one person having all the power, our mind immediately goes negative. We begin thinking of, well, that sounds like a a dictator or an emperor or, or a potentate, maybe even a king. Well, let's face it. We have a degraded view of a king. Living in 2015, when we begin thinking of king, we think king of rock and roll, the king of the court, LeBron, we even think of the Burger King, right? Okay, so we've got a degraded view of what a king really is. When you place all the power, all the decision making, all the judgment of the entire universe in one supreme authority, you would call that one God. And God has a throne. So John writes about that in verse 2. He says there's a throne in verse 2, part B. He said the throne was standing in heaven, and one is sitting on the throne. Now, when it says standing in heaven, it's literally talking about the fact that this throne is fixed, meaning it's immovable, it's permanent, completely unshakable, meaning your God's in complete control. That there is a throne means there's absolutes. And absolutes cannot be changed and will not be altered. And it's guaranteed by the presence of the throne and the fact that it's unshakable. When we think of things that are unalterable or unmovable, we begin thinking of the laws of science or the laws of physics. So naturally, we begin thinking there are some things that never change. There are the laws of gravity. You can't change gravity. There are the laws of magnetic north. There are the laws of thermodynamics. There's the laws of medicine. So scientists and physicians who work within the realms of science and medicine understand that once they figure out what the boundaries of the laws are, they have to operate within those laws because nothing changes, and that becomes their framework. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to morality. There's moral absolutes, and God's methods cannot be changed, never altered, no matter How far man wants to change the parameters, no matter how far man drifts away, God never changes. Right, church? So he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of turning in him. So God's throne is fixed, and he maintains law by the authority of his throne. I hope you find that as a comforting insight this morning. That that's very true of our God. He never changes. So let's complete verse two. It says this in part C, and he who was sitting, beginning to describe the one who's on the throne, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So we've got this one who's sitting. This word sitting is hedraos, and I'll explain that in just a minute, but we're talking about the king, is on the throne of the universe, meaning random chance doesn't govern the universe. God governs over the universe. So here's this next Greek word, the word hedraos, and it literally means to be steadfast, something that can't be changed. So God's in this posture of reigning Meaning all the events that are unfolding, especially as you look at the book of Revelation and it begins talking about the end of the earth and end things, meaning everything that is emanating and happening is because He's on His throne and He's in charge. So let it be known this morning before we move forward, there is a throne, it is fixed and God is on His throne, amen? Amen. Okay, let's move forward. We're told that He looks like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Now, when you begin thinking of a jasper, you're going to immediately begin thinking of something that's crystal clear, but it's diamond like. Matter of fact, Revelation in chapter 21 talks about the heavenly city where Jesus is preparing a place for us. And he says, it is crystal clear. Look with me on the screen, Revelation 21, 11. The brilliance of the holy city Jerusalem is the brilliance of the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. That's what John is seeing. He's having this literal physical image in front of him of God looking like this clear stone. But he also says it's like Sardius. He uses that word, and Sardius is ruby red, meaning fiery bright. So he looks at the center of the throne, and he sees what is a crystal clear image, yet it's emanating with this brilliant red fiery nature, and it's speaking of the blazing wrath of God. Ezekiel spoke about this. Ezekiel chapter 1, look with me on the screen, it says he's like blazing light, like fire coming out of the throne. So just picture this mentally. This king is enthroned. He's amidst sparkling light and flaming color. And it's refracting in unbelievable brilliance. And then he gives us another detail. He says in verse 2, there's a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. So an emerald, we're thinking green, right? So we've got a predominant color, green around the throne. Some of you MSU fans are loving that right now. We've got this dominant color, Now, it's not the only color. He says the dominant color is like an emerald. John uses the word like a lot because he's reaching for descriptions in the book of Revelation, trying to help us understand what's being communicated. So there's this encircling brilliance. We get more detail from Ezekiel again. Chapter 1 says this. Chapter 1, verse 27, And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. One of the things we know about God is that He has symbols that He likes to put in place. Genesis chapter 9 gives us a reminder of that, that when the earth was destroyed with the flood, God said in Genesis chapter 9, I am going to take my rainbow and I'm going to set it in the sky as a reminder of my faithfulness and of my mercy and of my grace. So, John's looking and he's seeing at the center of the throne this fiery red image that's crystal and it's emanating all of these colors, but around it is the emanating image of this rainbow of God. Meaning this for us God's wrath is never at the expense of God's faithfulness, His judgment never outrays His mercy. They're on an equal plane, so God's attributes are entirely the same. Maybe you think of God as being God 100% wrath and 60% mercy. Or maybe you think of Him 100% love and 40% justice. God is 100% everything. That's why He's God. So when John looks and sees this image of God on His throne, surrounded in perfect harmony with this brilliant green image, Yet, fiery red, he tells us this is an image of God in His wrath and His mercy at the same time. Verse 5 says, out from the throne, we're going to jump right over verse 4, but verse 5 says, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. That immediately makes you think of Mount Sinai. God with Moses giving the Ten Commandments. And what did the people see? Flashes of lightning. What did they hear? Rumbles of thunder. The earth begins to quake. John's seeing the exact same thing. It's associated with the presence of God. Uh, move forward with me again into verse 6. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. See, John's really struggling to describe these things, and he actually saw it. You can imagine our difficulty. So he says there's something like this before the throne. What is he seeing? This is what I understand that he's seeing. Before the throne of God is this immense expanse of crystal clear sheeting Shining brilliantly is very similar to what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. After God gave the Ten Commandments, he invited 70 of the leaders of Israel to join Moses up on the mountain, and God revealed himself. But all they got to see was the backside of God's feet. Look with me on the screen. Exodus 24.10, And they, the elders of Israel, saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Now, John mentions these four living creatures. What is he describing here? Well, they're not animals, okay? And and they're not pets. God doesn't have pets at the throne. What he's referring to here is in the Greek language, one word. It's the word zao, Z-A-O. And it it literally means moving quickly. It matches what Isaiah describes in the Old Testament, that the angels before the throne, the seraphim who are blazing red hot, move at lightning speed. That's what John is seeing here. So we're told a little bit more detail in verse 8, part A, and it says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Now, just focus on the thought that each one of them have six wings for a minute. Why do we get that detail? Well, it matches what Isaiah says in chapter 6, verse 2. Look at how he describes it. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew Why would angels have to cover their faces? Because even the most exalted, highest creator of the order of God cannot stand to look upon the glory of God or be consumed in his presence. So with two, they fly. With two, they cover their feet because they stand on holy ground. And with two, they cover their eyes and watch what they do. You're going to love this. Verse 8, part B, and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. If you complete it in the English language, it means, or is coming, the one who is going to come. We begin immediately to begin thinking of what Jesus committed, of His return, of Him coming back. But let's just focus on the thought of holy, holy, holy for a moment. In the Hebrew language, when you see a double repetition, holy, holy, it means something has to have great emphasis behind it. So you see Jesus employing that in the New Testament. He begins saying things like, verily, verily, I say unto you, means listen up, listen up. But when you see what is very, very rare, a threefold repetition, holy, 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 it's speaking of something that is absolutely unlimited, It's only found of the character and the nature of God in the Bible. So when you see them writing, holy, 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 they're talking about the character and nature of God being unlimited in His holiness. They're demonstrating the character of the holiness that's felt by everyone who looks upon God. Why do I bring that detail out to you? Because of something that you participate in on a regular basis. Let me give you an example from Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah says the exact same thing in chapter 6, verse 3. He sees these beings, and he says, One calls out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What we understand is going on before the throne of God is that there is antiphonal praise. We participate in antiphonal praise when we go to sporting events. You ever been to a Spartan game where you heard people go, Go green! And the other side of the crowd goes, Go white! Go white! Okay, that's antiphonal praise back and forth between the crowds. Now, I know you're dying to do go green, go white, but let's try this. Let's do holy, holy, holy. So we'll divide it from the upper in the balcony right down here. And on three, you guys do holy, 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 and then you get to scream it back. But do it this way. Do it as though your team just picked up the ball with three seconds left in the game. Okay? All right? You tracking? All right. Begin thinking that way. So one, two, three. Yeah, back at him. Okay, you guys are lacking. Let's do it again. One, two, three. Holy, holy, holy. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we see going on here in scripture. They're discovering new aspects to the awesomeness of who God is. And the scene begins to culminate in verses 8, 9, and 10. We're going to go to verse 11, but the praise of the four who are screaming out, Holy, 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 begins to trigger something among the 24 who surround the throne. Look with me at verse 11. Worthy are you, you guys just sang this. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Who do we understand was the Creator? We just looked over the last three weeks that all things were created through God the Son, and without Him not anything was made that was made. Who are they praising here? Jesus. This is not mechanical action. Never read it that way. Never look at this as though they're just doing this like Robox. They're declaring worship because God is awesome and He's on His throne. So go back mentally with me to Matthew 21. Jesus is teaching. He's condescended to become man in the flesh. And some people walk up to Him and say, where do you get the authority to do the things you're doing? I'll tell you if you can answer my question. I'll tell you by what authority I do what I do. If you tell me, where does John's authority come from? We don't know. Neither will I tell you. Jesus will not cast the description of this blazing brilliance of who he is before people who have absolutely no interest in what his answer is. His authority emanates from this place of dazzling, brilliant light, reflecting and refracting as shining through jewels where people are praising Him and declaring truth about who He is. And He's surrounded by thunder and lightning and angels who are saying, holy, holy, holy. And simple man says to Him, where do you get the authority to do the things you do? no wonder he doesn't respond see when you learn who jesus really is it'll change you completely it changes everything now you've just look at revelation chapter 4 very quickly and even more quickly we're going to go to revelation chapter 19 so if you have your finger there just flip over with me chapter 19 and verse 11 says this and john sees another amazing sight and i saw heaven opened and behold there's that word again Wow! I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadem. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So, Your last Greek word for this morning, John says, I saw. It's the word hara'o. And it means literally to be physically awake, conscious, but seeing something with your eyes as though it's right there in front of you, it's real. He's not dreaming. He's not in a trance. He's discerning this clearly, and that's why he says, wow, this has captivated me. I'm riveted. Because the gates of heaven have just opened up. These magnificent gates the Bible describes. And in the midst of it, A powerful white stallion marches out and bows, and a great conqueror mounts upon it and out rides the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has a destination. His destination is earth. God spoke about this moment when he was on earth. Jesus talked about people seeing him arrive on planet earth the second time because he's coming back differently than what he came the first time look with me on the screen matthew 24 31 they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory that's what jesus was talking about so john sees this white horse and he says he who sits on it is called two things he's called faithful and he's called true why because Jesus is always faithful. He can back up what he says, and he's always true. He's always faithful to his promises, and he's always true to his word. So, as a result, in verse 11, we see this one who's faithful and true in righteousness. He judges. Now, that might freak you out a little bit. Some people may think of Jesus as a judge and think, well, What? that's not the Jesus I envision. Well, maybe Jesus is not the way that you really picture him. Jesus is a judge as well as a savior. So we're told in righteousness he judges. Why? Because he's faithful. And because he's faithful, it demands a holy reaction. He has to judge. Because he does what he says, he must judge. And so, how reassuring is it that he judges in righteousness? See, Jesus came as a savior. But he comes back as a judge. It doesn't sound too much like the baby in the manger, does it? Uh, That's what freaks people out. What? I thought Jesus was all flowers and blue collars and love and everything. Jesus is that. But he's comprehensive. You and I live in an age of grace. We live in an age of grace in which God is incredibly long-suffering. But justice cannot coexist with corruption, So God is exhibiting His long-suffering nature right now in this age that we live in, and the verdicts that will be delivered by Him will be absolutely righteous and absolutely just. You'd want to know for sure that the judge that sits on the throne of the universe is just, right? You'd want to know that that one is going to deliver righteous verdicts because we don't see that in the court systems today, we'd like to know that that judge is going to adjudicate fairly. Well, that's your God. Let me back it up with Scripture. Deuteronomy 32, four. look at this. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Nothing compels God to act justly. You and I are compelled not to lie. We are compelled to tell the truth. We put on righteousness. Righteousness is who God is. It's His nature. He doesn't ever change, so He acts justly. In your notes this morning, if you've got one of the bulletins, pull it out right now and you'll see five things that I put down very quickly for you to understand what it would require for a court to deliver indisputable verdicts, meaning they can't be challenged. You're not going to see it on the screen, so just listen if you don't have notes, and maybe you can pick it up later, but it requires, first of all, an infallible judge, a judge whose judgments cannot be questioned, and it requires a comprehensive knowledge of all the details, meaning all the details about you, that that judge would know you that well. It requires a comprehensive knowledge of the law. It also requires laws that are absolutely unquestionable, and here's the last thing. It requires the authority to back up the verdict. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says about Jesus. When he's written of in Psalm chapter 9, it says this about God It says, The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. So John's looking, and he sees this white horse and the one who sits on it, and he realizes this one who is coming out from the gates of heaven is the Almighty, the Son of God. God, the Son who put on flesh, who was just described for us in chapter 4 as the one sitting on the throne, is now on the horse riding out of heaven. The Bible teaches that Jesus judges you and I, that He judges all of humanity. Jesus said this Himself. Look with me on the screen at John 5.22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. I hope you find that reassuring. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe that he took away your sins and he's coming back one day, that's the one whom you stand before, whom you have a relationship with. That's a judge I'd be very comfortable in standing before. That one who said, I died for you. Now we're told according to John, his eyes are also a flame of fire. Meaning his eyes miss nothing. He knows every single detail he sees into the deepest, darkest places of the human heart. And our hearts are wide open to him. According to Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I hope you find that reassuring too, that he knows you that well and he loves you. He loves you even though he knows you intimately, and you might feel like I'm so dark inside at times. Jesus says, I know that about you. That's why I died for you. So let's move forward and finish this up. It says this in Revelation 19, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I don't want to get into the details about why his robe is dipped in blood this morning, but what I want you to notice are two things. First of all, notice he's not wearing a helmet, is he? Kind of participatory. Not not wearing a helmet, right? Okay, he's, he's not wearing a bulletproof vest. There's no shield, yet it says he's going to war. You ever seen a military commander show up without his weapons or without his armament? He's dressed in a robe. See, there's no risk that there will ever be any harm that will come to him. No human can oppose him. He doesn't need a bulletproof vest. He doesn't even need a flashlight. He's got everything that he needs, but here's what I want you to focus on, the second thing. Do you notice what the writer's name is? The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2, the Word of God, one of Jesus' names, who's riding out to come to earth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Let's end this with these last two descriptors, verses 15 and 16. From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The same king who spoke the universe into existence as we saw in week one. That same power emanates from him and becomes a sword, which is the word, the power of God. And with that, he will judge the enemies. So the king of the universe is also a warrior. Don't see him as less than he is. He's not the baby in the manger. That's, that's just a, a tool that God used. See Him as the King of the universe. Don't reduce Him to less than what He is because of how we end verse 16. Verse 16 says this, On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, man, that's just so Awesome. When someone mentions or the image pops in your mind of the second coming, I don't know what pops in your mind at that moment, but this is what should. This is God's Word saying this is what the second coming looks like. The return of the King is the culmination of history. Jesus must return because it's the truth of the Bible. You believe that Jesus died for your sins this morning? Okay. You believe that He rose from the dead? Then you must also believe that He's coming again. Because He said, with exousia, I'm coming back for you. In the meantime, I'm going to build some places. And when I return, I will take you unto myself. See, He must return. You and I, we make promises we can't keep. We make claims we can't back up, but our God does not lie. He's incapable of it. Old Testament, New Testament, they both say it. Numbers 23 and 19, God is not a man that He should lie. Hebrews six eighteen: it is impossible for God to lie. So when God says to you, I will forgive you of all your sin if you will believe in My Son, He will forgive you of all your sin. When God says to you, I'm coming back for you. He will come back for you. And when God says things are going to be unimaginably better, they will be unimaginably better. So I believe. Mark Kring believes. Therefore, my belief determines what I do. When you really learn who Jesus is, When you discover all of his capacity and we really understand who he is, not who we want him to be, it'll change you. It'll change everything about you. I believe that the very one who is God the Son relinquished that throne and condescended to become man. I believe that he conquered sin at the cross. I believe that he conquered death at the resurrection. And I believe he's coming back again. That's your God. He cannot lie. So we end this today understanding that he has all authority in heaven and earth. And by that authority, he says, you're forgiven, you are forgiven. You get to go out of here with great joy today And celebrating the knowledge of that. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, this is a great day to do it. This is a great day. You just saw the witness of individuals who recently said, I belong to Jesus. They went into the waters of baptism for that very reason. If you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior, I challenge you to consider that today. What does it mean for me to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Because what you believe about God, it determines what you do next. Let's pray. Father, You know that we're about to fill our lungs with oxygen and praise You for all we're worth. So I ask that You would take this opportunity that each of us have to to send praise back to You and that You will glory in it. That Jesus will be magnified because of what He has done for us. For He's worthy. Jesus, You are righteous and You are true. And You are faithful. And You do not lie. So I stand among brothers and sisters in Christ today who celebrate what you have done for us. We know with great confidence that you are coming again, but in the meantime, we praise you for what you have done, that we know freedom from sin, that we are forgiven because of our King, in whose name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. How about if you stand right where you're at?